many of us ever know what it is to become the perfect version of ourselves? This is Decoding Superhuman with your host, Boomer Anderson. What's up, superhumans? It's just past the holiday season, or at least when this podcast comes out, it'll be just past the holiday season. And I just wrapped up an interview with my good friend and the first podcast guest on the Decoding Superhuman show, Dr. Benjamin Smarr. Yes, we're going to dive into all things sleep, whereas the first episode was more of a sleep 101. This is going to be kind of an advanced sleep discussion. Dr. Smarr, as you recall, studies the temporal structures that biological systems make as they move through time. He's an NIH research fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, and his work predominantly focuses on understanding how physiological dynamics like sleep, circadian rhythms, and ovulatory cycles are shaped by the brain. And he also looks at how disturbances to those cycles give rise to disease. Now today we're talking about a lot of really interesting things, some of which were follow-up questions that you guys had from our first episode, specifically things like what wearable is best. We talk about the differences between Aura and Whoop. We talk about Uberman sleep and why trying to pull off something like 20-minute nap cycles or 45-minute nap cycles may not be the best idea. What sleep stage is the most important in terms of both longevity, but also in terms of just general sleep habits? And his answer there may surprise you. And then finally, we talk about really that sequence of sleep stages and how important that is. And because Dr. Smar came on before I actually had the final four questions, you get to hear his answers to those today. So enjoy my episode. That's episode number two with Dr. Benjamin Smarr, and all the show notes for this one, including the links to all of Ben's research, can be found at decodingsuperhuman.com slash Smar. that's D-R-S-M-A-R-R-2, as in the number two. Enjoy my episode with Dr. Benjamin Smarr. Sponsor for this episode is The Ring on My Finger. No, I'm not married yet, and frankly, before this ring, I hated wearing rings. But I must say, the guys at Aura have done a great job. The Aura ring allows me to track all sorts of crazy things about my sleep, including my resting heart rate, my deep sleep stages, my REM sleep, etc., etc. I really enjoy the feedback, and it allows me to make lifestyle decisions to become a higher performer. Let me give you an example. So prior to getting the Aura Ring, I would fast essentially 16 hours after my last meal. It didn't matter when that last meal was. However, when I look at my resting heart rate and how that really correlates to my performance the next day, I know I want my lowest resting heart rate coming as soon as possible after going to sleep because that's when all my recovery really starts. So what did I do? Well, it allowed me to adjust really when my last meal was before going to bed. So I have my last meal now earlier in the night, I get better sleep, I get higher quality sleep, and I must say, the next day feels amazing. So if you want to check out the Aura Ring, and if you want to pick one up yourself, go to AuraRing.com, that's O-U-R-A Ring.com, plug in the code BOOMER, and you'll get $50 off your order, or 50 euros, depending on your jurisdiction. I really hope you enjoy the ring, and on with the show. 
Dr. Smar, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing great, Boomer. It's good to see you again. Yeah, it's uh, fantastic. You know, last time we were together was in California, lovely sunny California. Now it's the winter. I see you're long sleeved up and I'm freezing right now. So that's, that's a, it's a good sign of the year, but let's dive into it. So the question that, that a lot of the listeners came out of the last episode with, which that was the first episode, by the way, and we're going to be well past 50 by the time this comes out. So Amazing. this is great. One thing you mentioned was sleep cycles and the importance of the sequence of these cycles, or I guess the sequence of the stages. Do you mind elaborating on this a little bit more and why it's so important? Sure. So a sleep cycle, we talk about uh, people measure your brain, your cortex, and they see that there are these patterns of how fast are the little bumps in your brain going along. And they come in cycles of really fast and then slower and then really fast and then slower. What we've learned over the last several years is that these different stages have different roles in your body. So they're, for example, correlated with different hormonal outputs like slow wave sleep is associated or deep sleep is associated with growth hormone. What we've also learned though is that the ordering of them is part of that recipe for good sleep. So your body is not just saying, okay, give me so much time with camera A and then switch and give me so much time with camera B. It's really saying, well, let's do some slow wave sleep and that'll cover a lot of somatic healing, for example, but it will also set the stage for more efficient memory consolidation. And then when we go into REM, all those neural circuits will be primed up and you'll be able to remember more clearly. And so it's not just, did you get enough sleep? And it's not, unfortunately, even as simple as, did you get enough deep sleep or enough REM sleep? It's, did you really let your body get those all lined up so that they could be synergizing with each other, so that they could be helping each subsequent stage do a more efficient job? And the reason that's challenging is that they have different parts of your body trying to cause them. And so that's where having a stable schedule day to day lets your different parts of your body all get on the same clock. And then they can all go off, uh, you know, sort of like dominoes, like they're supposed to, instead of being at odds with each other. And now your cycle timing is messed up and now your sleep is less efficient. Is there any merit in these uh, strategies or I guess is any one stage more important than the other? And that's part A of my question. And then part B of my question is, is there any merit in strategies that are specifically designed or even pills that are specifically designed to boost REM and deep sleep in their sort of specific stages rather than just focusing on the whole? If we're talking about just bare fundamentals, right? I mean, we can have a little fun with this question. So if we're, if we're going to say, is there a most important stage of sleep in terms of not letting you die? Uh, getting some deep sleep every day, making sure you've at least gotten into your a couple of slow wave rounds, that'll keep you from dying. On the other hand, most of us don't don't work on a survival basis these days, right? And so in terms of emotional clarity, attention clarity, memory, a lot of that is coming from letting your brain then go into these REM bouts at the end of sleep. Uh, so sort of the latter half, that is not, not the very end necessarily. Uh, so from a modern knowledge worker point of view, sleeping in such a way that your body has gotten good sleep and deep sleep, uh, slow wave sleep and deep sleep first to enable proper REM later, you know, you really want to get that REM. So one of the things I tell people is, if you can, don't use an alarm clock because an alarm clock will wake you up when your brain was trying to finish off REM sleep at the end of the night. And it's, it's just going to make you feel groggy, you know, angry. Uh, fuzzy, 
all things that nobody needs. So and I'm sorry, remind me the second piece of your question here. The second piece of the question is, is uh, should we focus on the system or should we be focusing? Let's say I have an aura ring, right? And the, the new one, it's smaller than the old one. I get still get to see my stages in sort of deep REM light, etc. And let's say, uh, take for example, my own right? Like my deep sleep is about a fourth of my REM sleep. Would it be, should I be focusing more on specific strategies to enhance deep or should I look to uplift the whole? Uh, the, the, the scientific answer is we don't know. There's a bunch of layers to that. Uh, I think the anxiety associated with trying to game sleep probably gets in the way of good sleep more than anything you're going to do to game your sleep. But that's for somebody who's sleeping. If you're insomniac, if you're feeling chronically sleep deprived, you know, by all means, at that point, you should be trying to do things to help you get more sleep. I think pharmacology should always be a last resort. Uh, you know, pharmacology and surgery are things that have lasting effects that you may not want, right? So it shouldn't be done lightly. In terms of, you know, should I have 30% versus 35% versus 40% REM sleep? Nobody has a clue. Uh, it's not clear whether that changes with seasons, with day of the week, with time of cycle if you're a woman. This is one of the things that makes devices like the Aura Ring so exciting to me, is people are finally generating data that is both public health scale, right, covers an entire population that is, and retains resolution at the level of the individual. That's amazing. We just don't have that in health for almost anything. And so... Being able to be part of this discovery process, I think, is a, is super exciting about these days, right? You can take, you know, I can, I can, as a scientist, talk to Boomer, and we can talk about deep sleep, and we can talk about did you work out today or not, and let's see over time how that correlates with your deep sleep and your recovery feelings in the morning, and we don't know what that should look like. We don't know how different different people should look. That's really exciting. That's not, to me, that's not disappointing, right? That's an opportunity. That means we, we could be doing discovery work unlike anyone's ever been able to do. That's amazing. So I want to park that for a second because I know you're doing some really, really cool work and I want to come back to that. But what are your thoughts on things like polyphasic sleep or the Uberman strategy? Because we have a lot of hard drivers that are listening out there, people that are uh, you know, Elon Musk types that feel like they don't need to sleep and would have asked me multiple times, like, do you recommend this? And I have yet to see a long-term study as to the effects of these things. But what do you think about polyphasic or Uberman sleep? Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. I'm going to say that you never say never in biology because there's so much diversity. So maybe there are some people for whom this works. Uh, that, that is entirely within the realm of possibility, and that's as strong an endorsement as I can offer. <laughs> <laughs> Most people, everybody that I've ever talked to who does this can't keep it up. Uh, there's no evidence that I've seen that your body is really able to deal with sleep broken up that way. And it really flies in the face of what we were talking about earlier, that you want to sort of stack these cycles across the night so that your body can take advantage of them the way that it expects to. Taking a, maybe a half hour nap when it's sort of siesta o'clock, right? I mean, two, three, four in the afternoon. That's actually probably pretty biological and reasonable. Trying to say, I'm just gonna start my stopwatch and as long as the total gets to eight hours, it doesn't matter when, how those added up. It really doesn't seem like that's how your body does it. I've tried it for a few days and I, I just remember looking at myself in the mirror and saying, there's no possible way I would ever take a... <laughs> I, I'm glad I didn't document it because it was 
taking a picture of me after like the third day was pretty awful. Wait, if, if you don't mind, I'll just add, add one more piece there, which is that one of the things that is kind of insidious about sleep deprivation is you often don't feel sleep deprived, right? So the reason we drink is it, it feels good, but uh, you tend to know when you're drunk. Whereas when you're sleep deprived, you operate at about that level, right? So even after one or two nights of sleep deprivation, you're operating at about the legal limit in terms of attention switching and reflexes and this kind of thing. The problem is you don't feel that way. So it's easy to say, I feel euphoric, you know, doing, doing two hour naps every day is totally doing it for me. You're probably just wrong. You're probably just, you know, feeling high on your own sleep deprivation, but in fact, not functioning well. So the, the trick you did of looking in the mirror every day is a really good idea. Right. And if you feel amazing, but you've got bags under your eyes and you look sallow, like maybe that's data. Maybe you should back off. Do <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, Just a, an aside question. Do you ever think people will get, and maybe they do get arrested for this, uh, get arrested for driving under lack of sleep influence? Because in the United States, was, what's the sleep average now? It's less than seven hours. It's terrible. Hour. It's terrible. No, and this is actually, so the, the people that really inspired me into this career uh, is the Harvard Sleep Group run by Chuck Seisler. And, and they're, you know, they're my Marvel comic book heroes. They've been starting a big push for don't drive drowsy because uh, whether or not you get arrested for it is maybe a separate issue, but driving drunk, everybody knows you don't do that. It's dangerous. It's terrible. Um, you know, it kills people. Driving drowsy kills an order of magnitude more people every year in the U.S., uh, right? so, so an extra zero at least. And nobody thinks anything of it. They just go, oh, well, I'm tired. I'll, you know, I'll push through. I'll get there. So there's just a complete failure in terms of public education to get people to understand how serious this is. And I don't necessarily need to give everybody more jail time, but I, I think it would be very valuable to get more education out there so that people know you know, maybe I should stop, maybe I should rest, stretch my legs, whatever, like, there's a real risk associated with it. And it's probably much worse than whether you've had a glass of wine, in fact. Okay, now switching topics, to be clear. (laughs) But yeah, exactly. (laughs) We're not endorsing driving drunk, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, just, uh, we'll throw a disclaimer on the front of this. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) okay, anyways, back to, uh, let's talk about some of the research that you've done around social jet lag. Do you mind explaining this to people? Because this is a concept which I know, as a person who's been perpetually jet lagged, but also uh, a person who is now very, very focused on circadian rhythms and not avoiding social jet lag, that this is beneficial. But I think it's something that the public largely doesn't understand. And let me, I guess, let me frame my question in a way that would resonate with people. And that's, can you go out on a weekend night until 4am, sleep until 12 and expect to have the same level of performance as somebody who uh, goes to bed at the same time and wakes at the same time. No, <laughs> I guess I ca- yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no. I, so, so the reason, right? The reason is what we tend to call in the field social jet lag, and the idea there is everybody knows that jet lag feels crappy because your body doesn't know what time it's supposed to be on, right? And just exactly like we talked about earlier, where there's these different parts of your body promoting different stages of sleep there's different parts of your body promoting everything. And every cell in your body has a clock in it. And the problem of maintaining health is largely one of maintaining alignment across those clocks, agreement across those clocks. And so 
you don't actually need to get on a plane to jet lag yourself. You just need to basically frame shift some part of your body sense of time while not bringing along the rest of your body. So eating a midnight snack, uh, getting up with an alarm clock way too early because you have to go to school or go to work uh, at an uncomfortable hour, staying up late to go clubbing you know, or, or doing whatever you're doing. All of these things bring some of your body along into a different time zone and leave some of your body behind. And as long as your body is not lined up, not surprisingly, it's not able to be as efficient, right? Uh, either your liver and your pancreas and your intestines and your heart all agree on how do they do digestion and metabolism, or they don't. And one state obviously is going to make it a lot easier to be healthy. Okay. Now, how does that actually impact us at different stages in life? Because I remember being the 18-year-old fraternity guy and being able to pull this stuff off. <laughs> now, now I'm a little bit older and it doesn't feel as good. Yeah. At different stages in life, do we have different abilities to be able to work with this social jet lag? It's a great question. Um, and there's, it's not necessarily even abilities. Uh, probably the answer is yes, right? I mean, I think we all know that like the younger we are, the closer to a rubber chicken we approximate. And so the, the more we can just be resilient to everything. But, uh, you know, it's true for bone breaks as well as staying up late probably. But it's also the case that when you're in puberty, the gonadal hormones, right, testosterone, estrogens, these things, they tend to delay your body's clocks. And what that means is that most teenagers wanting to sleep in and stay up late really has nothing to do with them being lazy. It has to do with them having a different alignment of their clocks to the world caused by their totally natural pubertal hormones. So dorms wanting to stay up until midnight. In fact, my research has shown the average college student goes to sleep around 2 a.m. To me, that's kind of horrifying, <laughs> although I'm a morning type. Uh, uh, me too. But, but it's totally normal. Uh, you know, if you look at the distribution, I've looked over many, many thousands of students, right? If you look at the distribution, it's totally normal that they do this. And if they do it every night the same, they may very well be an A student. Uh, it's the ones that are unstable, that are socially jet lagging themselves, that are making it hard for their body to know is tonight an early night, is tonight a late night. Those are the ones that tend to suffer academically. Uh, in terms of early development, some of the work that I've done looking with uh, and in this case, of course, I, I can't do lifetime studies on people because I also only live at the same rate. So these are uh, rodent models. The jet lags that occur when mothers are pregnant have lasting into adulthood, lasting effects on the offspring that make them basically look autistic, right? They're, they're socially avoidant, they're fixative, they're fidgety. And so there's very little research. In fact, mine was the, the first to look at these behavioral effects. There's very little research that's happened to say developmentally what's going on, you know, really early childhood, what's going on with social jet lag. But all the work that's been done points in the same direction, which is that you, you get to probably your teenage years and you're basically a solid human being. And if you get injured, you'll heal and, you know, okay. But when you're really young, things have a lasting impact on you because your body is still developing. And so just like you would you know, you'd say, okay, well, I'm going to eat some sushi and my body will work out the mercury. And as long as I don't eat too much, I won't go crazy. But you would never say that to a pregnant woman, right? You'd say, no, 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 the mercury is going to screw with your kid. Don't get any mercury in you. Well, it's the same thing. If you get these social jet lag events when you're really young and developing, or if you're a pregnant mother, that may well have a lasting consequence on the developmental trajectory of that child. Uh, so again, thinking about social costs and the value of education Right? Don't drive drowsy. 
and try like hell to let your kid grow up with a stable internal clock system, uh, which means talk to your school boards about early school start times, which means don't stay up watching a ton of movies uh, while you're pregnant. If you can help it, try to sleep regularly. Sleep disruptions during pregnancy are, are one of the major indicators that you'll have complications or preterm birth. It's a major problem and people tend not to know about it. Uh, so it's, I think it's another one of these issues. It's really important to help people appreciate. It's not just about optimizing your performance as an adult. It's really about letting the next generation get to the point where they can be optimal. So basically, if I'm planning to have a child, uh, I should, tr and keep in mind the child's not in my body, so it's a lot easier for me. <laughs> but like, if you're planning to have a child, the woman or whomever's carrying the baby, maybe at some point it's the man too, but like, that person should try like hell to go to bed and wake at the same time because there may be something passed on to this baby. Could this potentially, by, by the way, could this potentially happen in sort of the actual seeding of the baby? Meaning like, could the father, I guess from an epigenetic standpoint, and we don't, I don't know if we know this, could they seed, if they were living a very night life, meaning going out to clubs, etc., and that was how the baby was conceived, could that potentially, yeah, could that potentially be passed on to the baby without even uh, the jet lag, social jet lag scenario in the pregnancy? I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me in so much as there's a lot of what the clockwork genetically is doing is what we call epigenetic, right? So it's modifying which genes are able to be expressed at a given time. And that's the sort of thing that gets passed on, you know, famously with examples like early life stress, for example, and it's this uh, Lamarckian inheritance that everybody laughed off until it turned out it was real. <laughs> uh, and so it's classic, <laughs> classic science, right? That's crazy. I've never seen that. That couldn't possibly happen. Oh, no, it happens all the time. Okay. It, it wouldn't surprise me. There's no studies done. It's probably a difficult thing to sort out just because there's so many things that influence development, right? But it, it wouldn't surprise me a bit if it turned out that that was the case. Um, one thing I would say is it, it's not like life is already particularly easy for pregnant women. Our culture does a very good job of trying to crush female cycling and crush female reproductive habits into a flat line, uh, which I think is super unhealthy in its own right. But uh, I don't mean to add to that anxiety. I think the point is to say, not if you're a mother, now you have to not stay up with your friends and it's your fault if the baby is anxious. It's much more that we need as a society to do a better job of valuing our time constraints the same way that we try to value our physical constraints, right? Which is to say, we care about the food we put into our body and the organic movement and the fitness movement. All these things are about get the physical stuff right, and that'll make you healthier, happier, etc. There's also dynamics that you have to get right. There's timing. Sleep levels is one example of that, but so is the ovulatory cycle. So are feeding and fasting rhythms during the day. So is the circadian rhythm, et cetera, et cetera. So getting people to see those as real biological constraints and value them, I think is super important. Uh, I think we do a basically sort of a piss poor job of that right now and, and we pay for it. And so the, the point of me being a public scientist is to say, I can go and look at how do I help you see where there really is a cost associated with this so that we can come back and, and think and make a better decision. I'm so glad you said that because 
in sort of what I do as a health consultant, I try and get people to follow rhythms. And, and frankly, it's one of those things that I introduce and people are like, you mean we're not going to talk about diet and exercise today? And I'm like, well, actually, this is really important too. And maybe more important than that. But thank you for for going into that because this whole concept of time is something that I think can be an absolute life changer in terms of performance Absolutely. for people. Absolutely. And in, you know, in terms of diet, if you eat exactly the same food at midnight as opposed to at noon, eating that food at midnight, more of it's going to go on as fat. We know this. It's going to cause more inflammation. We know this, right? It has nothing to do with what is the food. It has everything to do with was your body ready at that moment to do good things with the food or not? Not that diet doesn't matter. What the food is, is important. But ignoring the time because you're optimizing just the kind of food is really ignoring a, a dominant modulator of value within your body, which is time. It, it's weird to me, you know, I give a lot of talks, right, and academic and whatnot. It, it's really weird to me how seemingly unintuitive the idea of time is, right? I think we all know that time exists. It's one of the two fundamental axes of the universe, right, space and time. And yet somehow you tell people about time and they're sort of like, oh, you're one of those circadian biologist people. Yeah, I know the day exists. You know, what, what else is news? And they, there's just not, for some reason, there's not a lot of traction with, of course, you should care about when things happen, the order in which things happen, and not just what happened. Uh, that, that, just that, just care about time. That's a, that would be a great takeaway. If anyone had listened to anything I said, acknowledge that time exists. It would make me super happy. <laughs> Going back to the, the pregnancy uh, thing in, in terms of just jet lag and social jet lag and how maybe chronic instances are not a great idea. Uh, but what about one-offs? Like if you're flying from the U.S. to New Zealand, for instance, or if does that or just staying up at night with your friends, is that just not a good idea or is the body smart enough to handle this? sort of one-off instance? You know, my mother is fond of saying moderation in all things, including moderation. Uh, <laughs> and I, I like that. Um, probably your body actually benefits from a certain amount of challenge and plasticity. So just like I wouldn't recommend somebody eats only one food, even if it's a super healthy food, you know, don't, don't eat only that one food forever, right? Hedge your bets, try a few different things. It's probably not wrong to once in a while stay up or once in a while fly somewhere. There's a lot of good evidence that your body recovers from these things. And even, even if it's chronic, but for a while, right? So that is to say, if people have been doing rotating shift work, the longer that they've not been doing it, the more all these bad effects tend to go away, which is amazing and, and wonderful. Now that's for adults. That's not for developing kids, right? But even so, I think saying I'm pregnant so I can never fly is probably overblown. I think it's more an issue of, like you say, it's the, it's the chronic daily insults where you just don't get time to recover. Uh, and that's what I see in the students. It's, it's the ones that are every couple of days having to shift their schedule. They're just never able to not be jet lagged. And that's the thing that's really bad, right? The, the occasional thing, I had a drink or I stayed up or I ate some candy that was just pure sugar, like, okay, you know, don't live that way, but your body can deal with these things. Your, your healthy body's the point of being healthy is you have a little bit of balance in the bank so you don't uh, run into trouble when you do something silly, right? So going back to your work with the students, what conclusions can we draw there if, you know, there are some college students that listen to this. So 
what conclusions can we we draw on this in terms of if you're a college student or even if you're a high school student? I'm familiar with the Adina study. I'm familiar with your work. But what kind of conclusions should people do in terms of scheduling their classes for best performance? I mean, this is very much. So I don't. I don't want to oversell anything, right? This is very much still cutting edge research. What it looks like is that if you could change your schedule to match what we call your chronotype, right? So late classes for late people, early classes for early people, so that they were lining up with what for you is your peak attention. Uh, and so that they're coming at the same time every day, right? Because the, the timing is actually part of the memory. Uh, that will help you perform better. Uh, sports teams already do this, right? If you practice at the time your game is gonna be, you'll do better because your body knows this is the time when I should be in game mode, so I'm gonna get ready for that. There's, it's, there's some evidence, there's not a ton, but it's, it's perfectly sound evidence that your brain is doing the same thing and that timing is part of what we call state-dependent memory. The time is part of the state. Uh, that's an experiment that we're actually trying to do now. Um, so without going into too many details, working with a large number of uh, colleges around California and trying to figure out if we get students educational material and some change their behavior to align their classes to their bodies and some don't, do the ones that changed uh, if they change in the right direction, do they do better? If they change in the wrong direction, do they do worse? If they didn't change, did they not change? You know, the jury is out. But the, the theory certainly points in the direction of if you're able to align yourself, even if society is trying to fight you about that, you know, telling you you have an 8 a.m. class, but then also you have a 10 p.m. lab, you know, the more you can try to take care of yourself, the easier your life will be. It's not probably wise to wait for schools to have personalized chrono counseling class scheduling apps. I think one day we will, but that's going to take a lot of changing of momentum. And so, you know, taking responsibility for your own health to the extent you're able to, just like you try to go to the gym, just like you try to not only eat the baked potato at the food hall, trying to get your schedule basically stable, I think is probably good advice. The reason why I brought up this question, because I think it has broader implications for even adults, right? So like the workforce I have a, probably 60% of my clients claim that they are night people, even though they may not be, they've just forced themselves to be. Um, they, and just the implications of being able to construct your own workday, because now we live in a day and age where you don't have to be there at the office to work on the same computer. I, I love the research that you're doing because if, you can have a do-it-yourself workday and frankly people realize that what matters is what gets produced, then that that to me just you've just changed corporate America. You've also made people want to stay in their jobs too. I mean, hopefully. That's certainly what I like about my academic research is academia has any number of issues, you know, like everything does. It's a disruptive time, so cultures need to change. Um but one of the things that it gets really right is it basically cares about productivity, right? So I don't punch a clock. If wandering around in the woods is what gets me my better experimental design, nobody's okay. going to stop doing that, right? They may call uh, you Henry David Thoreau, but you know. <laughs> but that's kind of the point, right? Like people still know Thoreau, even though his methods were maybe unorthodox. And that's, that's exactly why I like this work is it you really have creative freedom to just figure out how do I do the best thinking, the best science. And I, I, identify strongly with my work. I care a lot about this, the value of this work. So I would hate to have somebody tell me when I was supposed to do it if that got in the way of doing it well. The one thing I will say is it's also 
uh, potentially a little bit dangerous because when you have, it's like kids, right? If you have total freedom, there's no constraint to tell you what might have been a better idea. One of the things people tend to do, thinking of your clients that think that they are all late people, if you're getting a lot of light in your eyes at night and therefore staying up later and, and jet lagging yourself that way, in fact, you'll sleep in because you're tired and your brain is a little confused. This is, well, I saw light until, you know, 1 a.m. Light only comes from the sun in an evolutionary context. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm in fact a few hours in advance and I should delay my clocks because I must be jet lagged, right? I must be off. And so people can sort of amplify their chronotype differences. They can make themselves become day-to-day -day much later people than if you took them camping, they would actually want to be. Uh, and so not, not confusing, but I do this every day with, and this is natural, is an important point also. Does that, that makes sense a lot. No, it makes perfect sense. I always think the best thing for this one is the vacation test. So if you go on vacation, if you go on vacation, what time do you go to bed and what time do you wake? And I guess that assumes you're not going to like a Beezer or some clubbing place, but I was say, maybe not, maybe not Baja New Year's, but some other restful vacation. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, what what's is there any real truth to this phrase that an hour before is it an hour before midnight is yeah, equal to right. two? An hour early yeah. is more is worth too late. Yeah, um, it's hard to say. I mean, certainly, if it's the case that you're, I, I think where that comes from is helping people want to go to bed earlier, right? If you're staying really late, like we just talked about, you're you're on your computer until one a.m. Recognizing that sleeping in won't make up the difference is important, right? Now it's it's not exactly that early stage sleep is in fact more important than late stage sleep. But getting out of that habit of it's okay to stay up later because I'm still getting my, you know, seven and a half hours or eight hours, that's that's not a good idea, right? That that's not how your body works. So if you can value going to bed earlier to allow a more natural sleep, that's where that sleep then becomes much better than the same amount of sleep but later. Now I want to transition into the domain of wearable technology because I love tech and i love the feedback loop. transition there <laughs> yeah and so i love the idea of feedback loops and one of the questions that came of the original episode was aura versus whoop versus other uh trackers out there what what's if you're able to comment on this what would be the best um what would be the best wearable out there so let me let me preface that by saying I think that the wearable market is advancing rapidly, right? So I expect there to constantly be new wearables. So if you're listening to this and it's 2020, probably this is no longer useful advice. <laughs> but, uh, personally, I'm a huge fan of the Aura Ring. I've tried as many devices as I can get my hands on. I don't want to say anything negative about other devices that I may or may not have particular issues with. I will say anybody that tells you that they know what you need is definitely lying to you. Right? We just don't have that level of knowledge. So if some device after two or three nights goes, okay, we've identified your sleep patterns and we can tell you when you're rested, that's bullshit. Just, just so that everybody makes, knows that, right? One of the reasons that I really like Aura, in fact, I'll just, I'll just enumerate a few reasons, right? Um, the hardware is really good. The sensors are really good. I've done, you know, with, with clinical equipment that I have access to, I've done validations to EKGs and EEGs and all that stuff with a bunch of devices especially the fact that the ring form factor is on this larger blood vessel in your fingers 
means you have a much better signal to noise ratio in terms of the blood density that you get with the LED sensors, which a lot of people use, as compared to shining it through your wrist, which is just a lot more meat to shine light through. Um, so the, the heart rate stuff is great. The heart rate variability stuff uh, is, is very good. And uh, of course, everybody has accelerometers. Another thing I really like about the O-ring is they have thermistors, so they can get temperature data. And a lot of my research has focused on the fact that many different hormonal systems within your body, thyroid hormones, gonadal hormones, uh, on and on and on, they tie into uh, body temperature, right? They affect metabolism and they affect, therefore, body temperature. And so body temperature actually is a great way of measuring are you having normal circadian rhythms uh, within a day, these ultradian rhythms, you can see sleep cycles, right? All this stuff. Very few devices have good temperature sensors on them if they have temperature sensors at all. And so I think that's super cool. But the big deal is they have an attitude, which is let's figure out what sleep looks like by working with people rather than trying to sell them back their own health when we don't even know what that looks like, right? So they, they differentiate themselves in my mind by saying, we're gonna share the raw data, we're gonna work with researchers, we're gonna be very public about you know, we think what we know what good sleep looks like, but this is different for different people. So let's let's find that out, right? Uh, working with groups like Quantified Self, for example, where people just want to say, you know, I'm going to drink wine right before I go to bed every second night, and then I'm going to compare my nights, and we'll see which features shake out. Aura is super cool about that, whereas you'd have to work pretty hard with most other wearables to be able to do that kind of experiment even to yourself. Uh, I think that attitude is great. I think it's really forward-looking. Uh, I think the more you can engage a large population of people to be excited about being part of discovery and enabling real personalized metrics instead of selling the idea of personalized metrics, uh, you know, the more you're really helping there to be a better future. And so I'm, I'm really excited about that. If you were to design your own wearable or if you were to enhance, let's take Aura or whatever one you want to, is there, what would you add? Because I'm always I'm always looking for the best metric, right? Or what's the next metric to measure? What would you add? It's a little bit of a challenge. I don't think wearables are limited fundamentally by the engineering. I think that at this point, miniaturized blood sensors, temperature sensors, activity sensors, uh, electrical sensors, right? Galvanic skin response, whatever. The the sensor technology is is magical, right? It is absolutely astounding. The Parts that are missing are the connection to biological patterns that matter, right? And so I think that's where this model of I'm going to sell you back your own health, you know, I'm going to collect all your data and then I'm going to tell you what works for you. I think that's really where this breaks down. If, if I don't know you have cancer and you've tried a new drug, uh, you know, where you are in your cycle, if you're a woman, whether you wake up sore every morning, like if, if I don't have that context, all I know is I have nights and some of them are different from others. How can, you, how can you make meaning out of that if you don't actually know what is associated with each night? And you can try really hard, and I know companies do this, you can try really hard to, I'm going to go ahead and just say steal that information, right? I, I looked at your phone and I knew you just left the restaurant and so I think you probably had alcohol, whatever. It's never going to get as good when you create a trust barrier by trying to take from people and sell back to them their own health as opposed to when you have a community that you say, we want to figure out what's going on with you so that we can give you better predictors, right? Yeah. That, that buy-in, that annotation, 
that saying, well, you know, yes, I have my Fitbit, but I also have my Aura Ring and I also have my glucose monitor and whatever else, right? I think that really only works when people want to be participating in it. Uh, same way our government works when people want to vote, right? There needs to be a culture where people want to be part of the process and there needs to be infrastructure that rewards that rather than what we do right now, which is terrible, which is that you punish people for sharing, right? We have these laws now where an employer can demand your genome if you've ever gotten it sequenced privately so that they can screw with your insurance rates. Did that pass, by the way? Yeah, that's crazy. It's so retarding of progress. You punish people for wanting to do a better job. It's just absolutely backwards. So you just basically have to change your name on your 23andMe <laughs> account these days, which, which by the way, I, I, I did <laughs> in response to some of their recent actions. But Right. I mean, it's, it's really sad to me. It's, it's such a missed opportunity. We have more capability to build real personal wellness than you could have even imagined 10 years ago. And we squander it by saying, well, who has money now? Let's figure out how we can pile a little bit extra on that as though somehow that's going to make up the difference of global well-being and global health. I mean, it, it is just wrong. Uh, it, it is the wrong side of history. It is short-sighted. And of course, what it promotes is people trying to get around the law. And so, you know, it, it's cowboy days, right? And you say, okay, well, how can I hack my glucose monitor so that I have a continuous, uh, you know, artificial pancreas for my diabetes? And I'm, I'm speaking hypothetically here. Uh, hypothetically or there, there may be steps are illegal right because somebody wants to control each piece of that process and sell it back to me without knowing my own body right so either i could pay more for a health risk or i could go into my garage and and that's also potentially dangerous right i mean you you promote people wanting to do these things themselves that's self-experimentation which is sometimes great and which is sometimes actually potentially damaging. It would be so much nicer if we had a culture where people were rewarded for saying, well, here was my experience, here were my data. People that are going through a similar kind of a thing, you know, let's let's pool that, let's work together in an open way so that we can really get to best practices. I, I love this. And what I would love to do is to get you and I had James Maskell on the show, who's doing some interesting things with healthcare and a whole bunch of others and just talk about how to how to fix this because it is a, well, it's it's a, it's a trillion dollar problem, right? And it's just, it's huge. I mean, you, can, you can put a money value on it. It's also the quality of life of every human being on earth, which we are choosing not to get right, right? We are making a social choice to bilk each other for nickels so that we don't actually get to live healthier, longer, and happier. That's pathological. Right? That, is, that is pathological acquisitiveness. It is, it is just plain wrong. We, we can be building better things, right? You and I are trying, lots of people are trying. There are some hurdles which just ought not to be there. And so I'm, I'm glad to work with anybody and everybody who's trying to do a more, you know, build that better future that we can all see as possible. I think it'll win in the end because it's hard to believe people would just choose to not do better. Uh, but it is just embarrassing to, to have these kinds of problems that we have in this day and age. Do you think anybody's doing it right right now, country-wise? I don't think we know what right is. I think there are some groups that are being much more malicious is what I will say to that. I think there's plenty of goodwill, right? I'm, I'm not a pessimist. I think there's a ton of goodwill. I think there's a ton of people trying to do right. I think it's a really complicated problem. It's just also obvious that, and I'm going to speak as an American, there are certain groups within my country that are just clearly malicious. And by that, what I mean is not necessarily that they enjoy the suffering of others, but they think that getting slightly more money for themselves is the only thing that could possibly matter. And if 
surrounded by miserable people, you know, somehow that's not going to come back to them. Uh, that to me is, is childish and it's wrong. Uh, and they would actually probably live better and healthier and happier if they, if they went, you know, did a little bit more giving and a little bit more mutual support. Um, but you know, they, they don't ask me. <laughs> so going back, uh, to something you said earlier about really companies and researchers, et cetera, participating together and really, uh, looking at just sleep and saying, there's a lot we don't know. We don't know a lot about the individual. Why do you think we know so little about sleep? Because as humans, we've been doing it arguably forever, or so at least since the humans existed. Why do we know so little? It's a great question. I think it's because it's been hard to measure in the classic scientific way, right? Uh, even something like diet, which right now, how much do we really know about diet, right? We've been eating for as long as we've been humans, but once the industrial age hit, we sort of burned all of that folkloric knowledge, if you like, and now we have to reinvent it. So, you know, at least when you're eating something, I can ask you, how do you feel about that? When you're asleep, you know, I can look at you and I go, yeah, he looks asleep. If I don't have pretty miraculous sensors, right, looking at things that are happening inside your blood and inside your heart and inside your brain, and I can't do that for a long time, and how did this stuff add up over after a while, how am I going to know, right? So it's, it's why I'm so excited about the wearable devices and about the participatory aspects that, that information technology makes possible now. I think it really is just an incredibly exciting pivot point for how we do biological science because we're finally able to actually see individuals and right? we're actually able to see what do people really look like day to day and we just haven't had that capability before if, if you don't mind there, there was a there was a phrase that i, I was sort of tooling with um that I, that I like which is it's the information reformation right and you hear a lot about you know it's the data revolution and it's it's whatever it is but I like data, the information reformation because historically uh, in, in Christian Europe, right, you had the Catholic Church was the gateway to knowledge. And if you wanted to know what's a good decision, you had to ask your priest and they could read Latin and they could read the Bible and they could say, well, God says this is a good decision. Okay. The idea of the reformation was, yeah, but we can translate the Bible into the vernacular. Why are we not doing that? Right. I could just have a Bible if that was how I thought good decisions were made. Why would I go through a middleman? And so I think we're at that point now where we can say, yes, you can go ask a scientist you know, or a doctor, um, and they can tell you, here's what the state of the art believes, but you could just have your own information, right? And you can know a lot more about, for example, your own aura account and your night-to-night -night sleep patterns than I could possibly know. And so that's good. <laughs> it's, not, it's not taking power away from clinicians and scientists. It's letting everybody actually have a much better view of the lay of the land and now you know people can come to me and they can say look i have these sleep patterns can you help me make sense of that awesome i would love to do that that's way more interesting than trying to figure out how can i get less good data and spend all my time doing that right this is this is such a different way of doing science of doing medicine it's just super exciting i love the idea of empowered responsibility because i mean the fact is, is that you people should take control of their own health and stop outsourcing that. Or, or at least when you take control of it until you don't know what you're doing, and then go and reach out, go go and reach out to somebody, and and that makes for a much more interesting conversation for that expert too. 
Because... Well, and realize how little experts know, right? I mean, we're, we're very good at uh, rebuilding seriously broken systems, right? I mean, the, the thing that medicine has gotten very good at, and it is amazing, is saying, you know, your cells are trying to fall apart and eat you alive. No problem. We'll just go in and fix that. Right? That's, that's magical. That's amazing. On the other hand, what should you be doing day to day to avoid that kind of thing? There, there's so much personal variability in that that it's very hard to know. And so individuals, you know, not only can you, can you take responsibility for yourself, you can live a better life. Of course, I agree with that. You can also be doing a real social good by using yourself as an example and sharing with others, right? And you say, well, here's what worked for me. What is it that makes us similar? What is it that makes us different? How do we know which practices work for which people? We're never going to know that because you waited for me to tell you. We're only going to get there if people feel safe about sharing these kinds of stories and learning as a global community. Uh, you know, that, that way forward gives us an enormous amount of personal information, personal wellness, personal predictive analytics that we just can't get any other way as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and so that's why, to me, it's so important that we have a culture that rewards being a good Samaritan and wanting to share your own body's information so that somebody else like you might have an easier time. Right? I, I talk to a lot of female reproductive groups, and nobody knows anything about menopause. Right? Well, what if you were going through menopause and you could share your symptoms and your physiology so that somebody who's a younger woman might look at that and say, hey, I'm starting to see some of that stuff starting. Maybe now I have an idea of what's coming. That, that would be just, that'd be great. Uh, but we need a culture that enables it, of course. That collective sharing is, is, a is a beautiful idea because people, I mean, innovation grows upon that sharing and innovation, frankly. So this is absolutely brilliant. <clears throat> One final thing before we, we jump into the final questions, which you haven't experienced yet. Because you, you were very early on in the process before I had these. But uh, the gut rig, can we talk about your research with this? Because this is a fascinating thing for me. And forgive me if I termed it wrong, but the gut rig, do you mind explaining this for people in the research that you're doing? Yeah. So this was done in collaboration with uh, some amazing engineers at UCSD, uh, Todd Coleman and Armin uh, Gerbans. And Armin just took a professorship down in New Zealand. So thinking about flying to New Zealand. So, uh, you know, they, they built out this system and the software backend that, that does all the noise cleaning that makes it work. So I don't want to be taking credit for their work. They're amazing guys. Uh, but what I was able to do was come in and say, well, now that we can look at basically when is your stomach contracting, let's, let's do this time thing, right? Let's look across days and let's look at sleep. And of course, once you can see it, all these things we expected to be there were there, right? You can see sleep stages and you can see ultradian rhythms within the day and you can see circadian rhythms across the day. It's, it's a great example of there's a ton of amazing engineering work going on. And the more of that that we can turn inward and say, well, let's look at these parts of the body that we just don't otherwise have a good way of seeing, right? The, the more we then just start adding to what does a person look like, right? What, what does the day of a person look like? I'll give you another example, if you don't mind. This was a study done with Quantified Self where, and I was a participant in this one, um, people were pricking their fingers every hour and looking at cholesterol, right? You, you and me both. I remember oh, yeah, this. Thing. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So, so for your listeners though, right? It, and I relate it to the gut rig because I think it's a similar story. What we saw when we were doing, you know, cholesterol, triglycerides, all this kind of thing, hour to hour rather than, you know, once a year at the doctor's office was that everybody had rhythms in this and every single person 
was going up and down through risk categories across the day in some marker. Every single participant, right? Even even nice, healthy, strapping people like you and me. <laughs> it, it's just when you have the technology and you add time, then you can see these patterns which turn out to be totally normal, which otherwise are just noise, right? Otherwise, you're a doctor and you go, I don't know, it's kind of in the human range, right? As opposed to, well, you're going up and down in a nice orderly way or your system is in total chaos, right? The average value, the mean value may be the same in both states, but the shape of the thing in time tells you a great deal once you can see it. Uh, one of the key takeaways I took out of that experience was um, the value of retesting and just making sure that you test over different time periods because I like, I think it was 100% of participants all crossed a risk category. Uh, it, it's just depending on what time of day it was. Depending on what time of day. And if you'd gone to the doctor at the wrong time of day, now you'd be on statins. Right? Exactly. Exactly. But going back to the gut rig, do you think this is something that could apply for, I guess, food sensitivities? For instance, you know, you, you could quite literally measure what foods are good if you're not eating everything at once. But like, <laughs> no, yeah. I think that's exactly right. And I think being able to measure how happy is your stomach as a function of time, right? A, you can get to, did your sleep help with the recovery of your GI system, your metabolic system? Sleep disruptions have a huge impact on obesity and diabetes, for example. So getting ahead of that kind of thing. I have a, I have a CGM in right now, and I can tell you sleep is probably the number one predictor of blood glucose first thing in the morning. But this is exactly the kind of thing that that is exciting to me, right? Is Because I've also been playing with CGMs, I think you know, um, continuous glucose monitors, that is. And right, you you know, like everything else, you see these patterns, you see these dependencies on, on sleep, on daily rhythms. Everything inside your body is connected inside your skin. So it's not surprising that they share some of these dynamics and that when you make it hard for them to do that by social jet lagging yourself, you make yourself less healthy. In terms of food sensitivities, in terms of developing metabolic disease in terms of healthy aging and keeping your system robust as you're getting older. I mean, the, I think the sensors are, are what enables us to look at what are the things that make a difference, right? It, get, it gets past the subjectively, I feel pretty okay if you ask me once a year, uh, which we know humans are just really bad at, right? Or, or the, to flip that, humans are very tolerant. And so if things are getting worse for me slowly, I'm likely to just keep redefining my baseline every morning as this is normal and let myself become, you know, obese and have heartburn and all these things and say, no, this is normal. Whereas if you could intervene and say, you know, every time that you eat a super burrito from wherever, your stomach freaks out for a minute and you get bad heartburn and we can see that your metabolism starts to go bad. Maybe, maybe we should stop doing that, right? That feedback, exactly what you were saying, that, that feedback loop of here's what your body thinks about what you just did. That's, uh, you know, I think that's super important. And, and this technology is what's going to allow that. So final three questions, it'll actually be four, but the final three questions are sort of rapid fire. Cause I know you probably have to go, Ben, but, um, what is health to you? Well, health is being in a state where your body is able to work, right? Health is ideally it's sustainable. Ideally it's something which is going to enable you to feel good. Uh, and not in a way that's going to kill you, right? Heroin feels good, but it's not sustainable. And so I think health is what lets you do the things you want to do as sustainably as possible. Favorite tactic for enhancing focus? Sleep is great 
taking walks is great. I tend to be a fan of uh, what I call stirring the pot, right? So whatever context you're in, just get out of it, right? If that means go somewhere, if that means eat something, if that means sleep on it, uh, just try to get yourself into a different perspective so that you can, you know, that fresh piece of your brain can come at the problem and, and really do it right. Favorite book on high performance? Jeez. Uh, I don't think that my favorite book on high performance has been written yet. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm honestly, I'm a fan of things. This is stupid. I'm a fan of things like uh, The Art of War. I'm a fan of things like Sun Tzu. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, two, two things, right? One anthropological, what, what are the things that pre-humans do? So looking at chimpanzees or whatever. And one is the folkloric stuff. What, what's the wisdom that's survived for a hundred thousand years of human culture. And uh, that's probably got a lot more depth to it than whatever the latest scientific study is. Very, very good point. You said uh, the art of war and what was the second one? Cause I interrupted. Oh, <laughs> Franz de Waal. So he's, he's a, when I was a kid, he was doing a lot of the ethology of chimpanzees. It was a big influence on me realizing that the things humans do have these very deep biological evolutionary roots, right? And we think of ourselves as free-willed individuals, but that's just totally an illusion of how our brains are built. And that you can start to understand what makes a human by understanding other human-like systems. Dr. Smar, Ben, where can people find out more about you in your work? Well, I'm pretty Googleable. Uh, I try to post things. Uh, I was going to say I try to post things on Facebook, but actually I haven't been doing much Facebook this year. But all of my papers, I try to publish open access so that anyone can read them. And uh, I'm always available uh, to if people want to reach out by email. Uh, it's easy to find. Uh, it's you know publicly available through Berkeley. And I'm, I'm happy to spend time engaging with anybody that wants to help build this participatory future. Well, Dr. Smarn, thank you so much for coming back on the show round two. Uh, this was so much fun, and I know people are going to get a lot out of it. But thank you so much for this taking the time. Fun, Thanks for inviting me back. It's a real pleasure. Excellent. And to all the superhumans listening out there, have an absolutely epic day. Superhumans, before you go, can I ask two favors? Did you enjoy that episode? If so, can you send me an email at podcast at decodingsuperhuman.com? Provide any feedback, positive or negative. I would love to hear from you. And for those of you who have really taken advantage of that, you know I respond to each email. Secondly, if you did enjoy the episode, can you head on over to iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, any one of your favorite podcast listening platforms, and give Decoding Superhuman a five-star rating. It would really be appreciated. And then finally... For those of you who are looking at taking an informed approach to health, head on over to decodingsuperhuman.com. Check out what we have going on over there. And if you want to schedule a free 15-minute discovery call with me, you're going to have that option. Superhumans, have an absolutely epic day. And remember, as always, choose health.